Now let's turn in our Bibles again to the Gospel according to John and to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, and we're reading from the verse marked 31. And we come uh, to the end of our studies in John's Gospel. Uh, That will seem a strange thing to say to those of you who are visitors. This is not just because David uh, will be back this week and uh, will be uh, here for the morning services, uh, God willing. But we've already studied chapters 20 and 21 at Easter time, and our uh, punctuation of John's gospel has actually brought us in the providence of God, not because I'm a super-duper designer of uh, sermon series to uh, these last verses. And if you're using a church Bible, I think it's on page 1088. Uh, Jesus had received sour wine uh, to refresh him uh, momentarily, and in verse 30 he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head, gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. We've been noticing in John's Gospel, chapter 19, that the 
order in which events take place is the order in which the church almost from time immemorial has made its confession of Jesus Christ in what we call the Apostles' Creed, except that John chapter 19 begins not with the Apostles' Creed, but with an Apostle's denial. But as the narrative goes on, the words of the Apostles' Creed are clearly based on these gospel narratives. Uh, He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. And now uh, we have him in these verses, dead and buried. It's actually fairly unusual for Protestant Christians to think about this. Uh, Part of the reason is, unless you're in a church where people go systematically through the Gospels, you tend to jump, don't you, from uh, perhaps Monday, Thursday, or a Good Friday service, and immediately you're in Easter. And Holy Saturday, to which John Ferguson referred in his prayer, is a kind of non-existent phenomenon in the way we do church. What on earth is Holy Saturday? And here in John's Gospel, we are encouraged to pause between the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. The gospel writers don't rush on from the fact that He was crucified to the fact that He was raised again, as I suppose subliminally we tend to do because of Good Friday and then Easter Sunday. And the gospel writers record this, and the church in the past has celebrated what they call Holy Saturday because Jesus continues to be at center stage in the gospel message, not only in His dying and in His rising, but in His death and in His burial. Indeed, if there is a central theme in John chapter 19, it is that Jesus reigns. In chapter 18, there was a discussion about Jesus' kingdom. And fascinatingly, from chapter 18 through into chapter 19, and especially in chapter 19, the word that is used, the noun that is used most frequently is king. And so, if you read through these verses slowly, that word will keep coming up in the discussions. Jesus and Pontius Pilate, and then Pontius Pilate and the sign on the cross, and then the Jewish leaders complaining about the sign of the cross, and Pontius Pilate emphasizing what he has written, he has written. So that even from a a literary point of view, what stands up here is that Jesus reigns, that Jesus is king. And in a remarkable way, this also comes to the surface as we read about His being dead and His being buried. Uh, He continues to be the chief actor in the drama. He continues to be, as dead and buried, the figure who has influence on others. And it's a very remarkable thing to see the way in which John works this out. Uh, From these last words in verse 
30, which describe his death as a kingly act. He decided when he would die. And this is one of the reasons why the soldiers are amazed that Jesus has died as they think prematurely because crucifixion was a long, slow, lingering death. And they had to kill the other two criminals who were uh, being crucified beside him. But we have this marvelous picture of Jesus who has said, it is finished. Uh, if you were in the presence of royalty and one of the servants had done exactly what the king or the queen had given them to do, what would be the last thing the servant would do before he left the presence? He would incline his head. And this is what Jesus is doing. He has finished the work that his father gave him to do. And with a regal bow, he then, not as those of you who remember the authorized version will remember, gave up the ghost, like just died. No, he bowed his head and he delivered over his spirit. It's actually the very same verb that's used right at the beginning of the chapter for Jesus being delivered over in order to be tried. It's, uh, it's not just an, oh, well, I suppose that's it. I'll give up the ghost. It is Him delivering His Spirit to His Father. And so these last words tell us, expect the King to show that He is reigning. And this emerges both in his death and in his burial. Uh, notice again <clears throat> how in our uh, verses today, John continues to expose religious hypocrisy. Uh, we've seen him doing this again and again. How does he do it now? Well, what are these Jewish leaders doing who have just been engaged in crucifying the Son of God? That's what they have just been engaged in doing, crucifying the Son of God. Uh, they're in a fuss. They're in a, they're in a tither as to one of the Old Testament laws that those who hang on a tree should not be left hanging there overnight. So there is this detail of Old Testament law on which they focus all of their attention because they are supremely spiritual. Well, what they have been engaged in is an attempt to destroy God's Son. And so they want the bones broken. Um, and the soldiers come along, they break the bones of the, the criminal on the right, the criminal on the left, and they come to Jesus uh, in the middle. And he's, he's already dead. Uh, they do this because... Uh, um, they, they want these men to die by asphyxiation. So they'll no longer be able to, to stretch themselves up and, and be able to breathe, and they will die quickly. Not of broken legs, but of asphyxiation. But Jesus has already given himself over to the tender care of his heavenly Father. And so no bones are broken. But then in a kind of wanton act of destruction, one of these soldiers goes up to Jesus and presses his spear into his side, and, and this uh, strange phenomenon of blood and water uh, come forth from 
within him, verse 34, which uh, those of you who are medical doctors will uh, be interested to try and work out, those of you who are medical students, so, so what's happening here physically? Um, and the answer is none of the medical experts seem exactly sure what's happening. And actually, John isn't so interested in the, the medical uh, description of what is happening to Jesus, as uh, I think we'll see in a, in a minute. What he is interested in saying is, they said he was dead, and then they made sure he was dead. Perhaps because as John is writing his gospel, if indeed he's writing it late on in the century, uh, as he writes in his first letter, he has begun to encounter a, a kind of mingling of Greek Hellenistic philosophy with the truth of the gospel that is beginning to say Jesus only appeared to be a human. Incidentally, if you want to know the story of Islam and why it is that the Koran denies that Jesus actually died on the cross, then it's because of the kind of false Christianity that John was beginning to encounter right at the very end of the first century. And not incidentally because what he encountered was Orthodox Christianity. And perhaps John is wanting to emphasize just, and this is why he says, now I was a witness to this. He really did die. He really was a true human being, and he really did die. And I saw it. My own eyes, I bear witness to it. But you notice, typically, typically John, John has kind of Bible lenses, he not only sees facts because he knows that facts are never gospel. The fact is, Jesus died, the soldier stuck his spear in, blood and water came out. And what John, with his Bible lenses, realizing that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, does is to, is to see what's happening in its true light and to show us how these facts are actually good news. I mean, this is incons it's inconceivable that this would be good news. But John sees that here there is good news. And you'll notice he, he refers to at least two passages in Scripture, prophecies that are to be fulfilled. The first, that no bone will be broken. It's probably a probably a reference back either to Psalm 34, that God will guard the righteous sufferer so that his bones will not be broken, or, or probably more dominantly to the Passover lamb. Remember the regulations about the Passover lamb? Passover lamb was to be a perfect lamb, no bones broken. And so you see what John sees? John sees, ah, yes, uh, this, is, this is what I was beginning to tell you at the beginning of my gospel. Torah came through Moses, but the reality comes through Jesus Christ. 
in Torah, in, in the Old Testament law. He had read about this Passover lamb that was sacrificed so that the, the blood might be put on the, the doorposts, and the, and the angel of God would pass over those houses, and their firstborn would be spared. But otherwise, the firstborn would die. And here is God's firstborn, as it were, and he has died outside the city wall, shed his blood. He is the Passover lamb. And, and those who see that it's, it's through the means of the Passover lamb that we will be saved from destruction in Egypt and, and be able to flee in the exodus John sees, oh, this is God's way now. That was just the picture. The Torah came through Moses, but grace and truth, the reality, have come through Jesus Christ. And then this other text that he refers to, which uh, is from the book of Zechariah, the end of Zechariah chapter 12. It's about, it's about the Lord Himself being pierced. And it's very interesting, the very next verse, beginning of Zechariah chapter 13, is about a fountain that is opened in Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. And, and it looks as though John is seeing, oh, the, these, these Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. This, this fountain that's been opened from within Him so there is the blood that saves, and there is the fountain of water that flows from the Messiah that transforms. No one has better caught this than Augustus Montague Toplady. It's a name to conjure with, the great hymn writer. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which poured be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. And so, what John sees really is the double cure for our need, for, for our need to be delivered from the guilt of our sin on the one hand, and our need to be empowered to live the clean life. And you remember how John had already recorded in the Gospels that Jesus has said, you, you need to drink my blood, not literally, but you need to come to me and find forgiveness through my sacrifice. And then in chapter uh, 7, the next chapter, John had had recorded Jesus uh, speaking about the Holy Spirit coming and uh, how the Holy Spirit would, would, would flow from within Him, which I take to be Jesus Himself. And now, years later, as He looks back, He, he sees all this, uh, and He gives us hints as though we're standing there. He's saying, just, just look at the hints. I want you to be there. Like, were you there when they crucified my Lord? I want you to see what's really happening here. And it's all marvelously portrayed here in, in Jesus' death. 
the double cure that we need. And then, of course, in a sense, something not equally wonderful, but something wonderful follows. Jesus is dead in verses 31 to 38. Jesus is buried in verses 38 to 42. And what's so wonderful here is who appears uh, at the cross and then towards the garden, who appears out of the darkness. But this otherwise unknown man from Arimathea, and nobody's very sure even where Arimathea is, He clearly was a man, as the other gospel writers tell us, who was rich because he had this tomb already there. He was a member of the Sanhedrin and particularly respected. And we we need to, you know, we almost need to be there to sense what an amazing thing this is that all of the gospel writers record. Um, That Joseph of Arimathea who believed in Jesus, but secretly. John's already told us there were, there were those who believed in Jesus, but because of social fear, they, they didn't come out, as it were, and declare themselves disciples of Jesus. But we're told explicitly that Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple of Jesus, and the reason he was secret was because of his social position. He was one of the greatest and most respected men in the land. And now he was stepping out here. He was going to be with those women who had watched Jesus die. And he was going to go to Pontius Pilate. This is, this is an unimaginable act of courage. Not least because if he touched Jesus' body, he would be defiled for the next week and not able to take part in the great Sabbath that followed the Passover. And he comes and he asks permission. It's an amazing thing. Dear ones, he is destroying himself here. He is doing something that in this society is calculated to lose him. Everything that he has counted valuable, his position in the Sanhedrin. This man is being executed for blasphemy and treason. And he wants to take care of his body because he believes in Jesus. How much does he believe in Jesus? What does he know about Jesus? He knows enough to believe in Jesus. He's heard, apparently, he's heard Jesus teaching and preaching, and he's taken it in. You wonder what conversations took place at home. Wonder what thoughts went through his mind if I step out and say, I'm a disciple of Jesus in this culture. I am ruined. But look who's with him. This is just as amazing. Another member of the Sanhedrin. uh, A decent man. A good man. A man who knew his Bible but couldn't understand it. A man who came to Jesus in John chapter 3 in order to to have a discussion with him, probably surrounded by some of his own pupils, because we're told he was the theologian in Israel. And, And now he comes. And what he does is itself remarkable. 
Um, there's no way of proving this, but the name Nicodemus is actually a very rare name in, in Jewish family history, and you know that the, the Jewish people prize their lineage. So, it's a very rare name, but there's one family, one Jewish family in which this name appears like every second generation, which is a kind of pattern. You know, every second generation, you give, you give a child the, the name. Do you know what family it was? It was the Gurion family. Those of you who are my age, that rings a bell. David Ben Gurion, the, the, the first prime minister of modern Israel, the father of the nation. Nicodemus probably came from that family. And he was clearly hugely distinguished. And look at what he does. John is very, very interesting in the way he describes this because he's, he has left every New Testament scholar wondering about this question. Did Nicodemus become a Christian believer? You notice he says quite explicitly about Joseph of Arimathea, he was a disciple, but secretly, but he makes no comment on Nicodemus. What do you think? Well, look at what he does. You remember what happened when Jesus was anointed in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus with a pound of ointment? Look at what we're told about Nicodemus. Nicodemus has either had or gone off to get a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about 75 pounds in weight. Now, uh, so what's the deal? That's a lot of weight. Actually, he almost certainly wasn't carrying it himself. Nor was Joseph of Arimathea there on his own. So, this is, by implication, a very public act in the presence of the servants and others. And this is, this is a burial fit for a king. And that's probably John's point, that Nicodemus, all you need to say about Nicodemus is he brings 75 pounds of materials. That's weight, incidentally. Okay, just in case there's any confusion, that is weight in order to anoint the body of Jesus in His burial. And as I say, this is a burial fit for a king, and it's right because He is a king. And it's interesting to me that the only people John mentions in his gospel apart from those who need to be mentioned because of the narrative, Judas, Annas Caiaphas, Pontius Pilate, the only people he ever names are people who became believers. But he doesn't quite say it about Nicodemus, and I think there's a reason for that. But in my imagination, I think of these two men perhaps helping to carry the body of Jesus this short distance with 
with all their others. Can, you can almost imagine the conversation. They, obviously, they were obviously friends. This was not just a happenstance. Oh, Nicodemus, what are you doing here? They knew one another fairly intimately, I would imagine. You know, there was a, there was a big deal in Scotland in the early 18th century because some of uh, the ministers in the church began to use an expression that they found in a, in a book that was uh, written the century before, some words by a man called John Preston, who said, go and tell everybody there is good news for him. Christ is dead for him. And these men, the Erskine brothers, Thomas Boston, some of you will know his name, they thought what a marvelous way of saying, we preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and we preach Him to you. Just let me steal that phrase, well known in Scotland, and imagine Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they're, they're watching the servants, and they fall into conversation. And uh, Joseph says to him, Nicodemus, do you remember what he said? He said, you needed to be born from above. I'm not sure I really understand that myself, but do you remember how he went on to say that he would be lifted up from the earth just like Moses had lifted up the bronze serpent when the people were afflicted, and God gave them this sign that He was willing to, to pardon them. And Moses said, look, and you will live. And you remember he said that that's what he was actually coming to do? You know, Nicodemus, you know what I've come to believe now that I've seen what's happened? I, I don't understand it all, but I realize Christ is dead for me. I don't know what's going to happen now, but I'm His. What about you, Nicodemus? Christ is dead for you. He, he told you all about this. I wonder what Nicodemus would have said in his answer. You know, you can't be certain about some of the things John says, but here, here's what I think is going on here. You may see it differently, but I think this is what's going on here. I wonder if you noticed in our reading uh, that he had written in verse 35 that he who saw all this, the crucifixion, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. There are only two places in John's gospel where this happens. There are actually, I think, only two places in the whole of the New Testament where this happens, where the author who is writing for his readers, then speaks not to the you, who were there at the cross, but to the you who are listening to the story. I think he's saying, I've written all this, and perhaps now I've brought you to the very place that Nicodemus was brought in company with Joseph of Arimathea? Was he going to trust the crucified Savior and 
experience the double cure, like his friend Joseph of Arimathea had done. And it would be just like John to leave us hanging in the narrative, asking the question, this is what we think we're doing. What happened next? When actually what John is doing is saying, so, that's my question to you. What is going to happen next? And that's always the question, isn't it? My, what a moment for Nicodemus. He'd seen his friend, as it were, burn his boats, and he had so much to lose. And yet his friend had seen that in Jesus Christ there is infinitely more to gain. And I think that John would never have mentioned his name by name unless he knew that what happened next to Nicodemus was the beginnings of real faith. And that's where we leave John's gospel. This age, I may never again preach on John's gospel. Never again preach on John's gospel. I can't tell you how sad that makes me feel. So I want to do it again. But that's how John's gospel in this series leaves you. What next? Faith, following, discovering. Turning away so that your name would never be remembered in the annals of the Christian church. When it could be confessed before God by His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray together, and as we do so, the voices of harmony are going to come up. Uh, even as we pray, please do that if you're in voices of harmony. And after we've prayed, we're going to sing. They will sing the first three verses of the song, and then we'll stand at verse four to join them. So let's bow together in prayer. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this amazing gospel, this gospel of John that You've given to us, but the the gospel that the gospel of John teaches us, points us to Jesus again and again and again. We thank You for His service to us and for the ministry of Your Spirit through this wonderful Word of God, and most of all, for our beloved King, Jesus. And we pray that as we find ourselves faced with the wonder of His death for us on the cross, the marvel of uh, an example of the ministry of Your Spirit in the heart of Joseph of Arimathea, and a question hanging over uh, this man Nicodemus. We pray that even if we cannot solve that question about Nicodemus, there will be no question about where we ourselves are in relationship to the Lord Jesus, that we too trust Him for the double cure, become His disciples. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.